Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is episode 67, Why We Need Universal Continuous Health Care from Birth. My guest, Judith Albert, MD, is a retired physician in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She received her medical degree from the University of Cincinnati, completed residency in obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Pittsburgh, and a fellowship in reproductive endocrinology at the University of Pennsylvania. She practiced in academic and private practice settings for over 30 years in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. Dr. Albert joined Physicians for a National Health Program in 2016 and has been active in her local chapter. She was elected to the National Board of Directors in August of 2021. Dr. Judy Albert, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Thank you, Joe. I'm delighted to be here. So, I'd like to start by asking, what do you think people need to know about our current health care system? Well, I think that many people are already aware that uh, we have some problems with our health care system as COVID uh, exposed. Um, but from the basic explanation of the system, I think it's important to understand how people get their health care. And most of the time, what people think about is how does their health care get paid for? So in the United States, somewhere around 50% of people have employer-sponsored health insurance. And uh, of course, you have to have an employer in order to have employer-sponsored health insurance, and that employer has to provide the insurance, um, and large companies are required to do so by the uh, Affordable Care Act, but smaller companies are not, and in some cases, when people don't work full-time, they do not have to be provided with employer-sponsored health insurance. And so uh, other ways that people have their health care paid for uh, would be through public uh, programs. And so a very small number of people have public insurance through the Veterans Administration or the Indian Health Service, um, and larger portion have public assistance um, that we know as Medicare, which is um, predominantly uh, seniors, retired people over the age of 65, but also includes people on kidney dialysis with chronic kidney failure as well as the permanently disabled, and they make up about 15% of the population who are insured. And then the other commonly uh, known public assistance would be Medicaid, and that's about 20%. Medicaid is a means-tested, meaning uh, there are certain criteria that you must meet in order to be eligible for Medicaid that have to do with uh, low income, low wealth, and uh, also certain um, children whose parents are not insured. Um, and then that leaves about 5% of the population with no insurance whatsoever. That amounts to almost 30 million people. And 
uh, about 6% who pay for their insurance out of their own pocket. So self-employed people um, and people that are self-employed and have enough money to buy insurance. Um, so that, that's sort of the basic breakdown of how health insurance is structured in the United States. Of course, there's a lot of complexity in how healthcare gets delivered um, through that structure. And some of the problems that exist um, have to do with even people who have employer-sponsored health insurance because it has become so costly for employers. The benefits have been reduced, meaning that even though you have insurance, you have a lot of um, co-insurance, and by co-insurance, that means deductibles um, and co-pays. And sometimes the deductibles on employer-sponsored health insurance can be extraordinarily high um, in the thousands of dollars, and effectively that can mean uh, that that healthcare isn't accessible for people because they don't have the money to pay for their insurance until their deductible is met. And so those people will go without health care, and that means they've got significantly reduced access to care. So that's kind of a, an introduction to some of the aspects of what people need to know. Um, I think fundamentally, um, when we think about what should health care be um, and what we should know about our own system is that it's inequitable and it leaves a lot of people out. Um, and that contributes to some of the national rankings that, or international rankings of measures of health that we have seen year after year in that the United States does not rank well in comparison to other economically developed countries along certain major measures like life expectancy infant mortality, and maternal, maternal mortality. In fact, we rank worse among all of those measurements, which is kind of surprising given the fact that we tend to think of, a, of our country as having the best and the brightest of all the um, physicians and scientists who work in the healthcare field, but somehow it's not creating a system where we have the best health. The other thing that I think is really important to know, and, and most people are aware of the fact that drug prices in the United States have uh, become a huge problem, even for very common medications like uh, insulin, like uh, EpiPens that are life-saving medications for people with certain very common conditions. Um, and, and part of that is because uh, we have allowed there to be a situation where we can't exert any price controls on pharmaceutical prices. And so uh, we also pay more money for medications than any other economically developed or otherwise nation in the world. And, and so that's a big problem for people. Um, some people are forced into a situation where they divide their pills in half, and they don't take their required doses or they may have to not fill a prescription in favor of paying their rent or buying food. So we, we have some real significant problems, I think. Well, one of the things that you mentioned is 
um, maternal mortality. And I think for a black woman, I think it's, what, about two and a half times higher than it is for a white woman? Yes, that sounds about right. Since you were an OBGYN, could you talk, perhaps give some examples of how that affected your practice and your patients? Well, I mean, in my practice, actually, I, after my training, I, I did not practice obstetrics. Um, and so I don't have the direct experience with the issues that face black women and women of all races in terms of getting uh, prenatal care and getting pre-prenatal care in between pregnancies. I don't have the direct patient care experience with that, but I'm certainly aware of um, of what the problems are. So, you know, one of the um, unique features of the specialty that I was in is uh, that the uh, subspecialty and uh, most advanced treatments for infertility that we have are pretty much excluded line item by line item from most of the private insurance companies' uh, coverage just because they can, because they've decided that it's not medically necessary, it's not not life-saving, even though it is certainly a, a significant uh, life and health issue. So um, most of my patients um, either had insurance that paid for preliminary things or they had enough money to cover the uh, the, the infertility treatment. So I don't, that's the reason why I don't have the direct experience. But, you know, more and more, what we're seeing in the obstetrical literature is the information about uh, not just the 40 weeks of pregnancy. And that is one condition that any woman who is pregnant will become eligible for Medicaid. But it's the interpregnancy time frame. And now, you know, these are some of the times when these terrible maternal mortality statistics have been seen is in the postpartum period, which is more than just six weeks. Um, and, you know, there are health problems that are unique to that period of time. And many women are, are dropped from their Medicaid insurance after delivery, or they don't have medical care available to them that won't be paid. Prior to getting pregnant, they may get pregnant without having the opportunity to plan the pregnancy, and their condition when they conceive has a major impact on the health of the woman through her pregnancy as well as the health of the baby. So to have this stop-start um, eligibility for insurance coverage for women in the childbearing years has has just been devastating for uh, those statistics that you mentioned. So a way of summarizing would be that if we want healthy moms and healthy children, we need to make sure that we get them health care before, during, and after their pregnancy. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's a continuum that, you know, it really, and, you know, it goes all the way back to development as, as when they're, when women are are young girls and babies. Um, it, you know, you can't just put a stop time to when when you deserve to have health care and when you don't. 
And of course, the way that you um, develop through uh, diet, health issues, immunizations, and all of that, all of those um, uh, routine pediatric um, interventions is going to have an impact on your health when you uh, come into the reproductive years. This is a bit of an aside, but I'll just ask the question. Can you please just state that the COVID vaccine does not cause infertility? Oh, yeah. (laughs) The COVID vaccine has been shown to be very safe uh, in pregnancy and pre-pregnancy, and there is no evidence that it causes infertility, low sperm counts, um, or anything of that sort. So one of the things that you mention is that often the insurance companies will not pay for infertility treatment. Who makes that decision at the insurance company? And why do you think they make such a decision? Well, um, I mean, the only way that insurance companies can make money is if they can collect premiums um, to pay for health care. And then they figure out ways to limit what health care they are going to pay for. That way, the premiums that they collected are are going to accrue. Um, and the more that they deny care in various ways and the ways that they can get away with it, you know, it, there, there has been a problem over the years in categorizing infertility as um, a disease or a disability. Um, and I don't think we as a country have really quite come to the conclusion of what that, you know, what the category should be. But there has been a, a so-called standard in the insurance industry that uh, they need to cover things that are medically necessary. And they often use um, this procedure is not medically necessary as a way of denying the services. So there are a handful of states that have taken the trouble through legislation to mandate that all private insurance carriers need to cover infertility services. Massachusetts has the most liberal of all those laws, um, but Maryland, uh, Illinois, uh, I can't remember all of them. None of them, I've not worked in any of those states. Um, So in those states, you see quite liberal coverage uh, because the the, uh, legislation has been very specific about what needs to be covered. And I mean, that's a bit of a separate issue going forward and thinking about health reform. And certainly um, the cost of providing the the most sophisticated infertility treatments is quite high. Um, And the, you know, insurance companies feel that that's not a cost that they feel that they should bear. Well, on a personal note, let me say that my wife and I had some trouble conceiving our first child, mm-hmm. and we did not need to go to um, infertility treatments. But if you're having that trouble, you definitely think that you need medical care. You would consider it a medical necessity. Of course. And if we want to have, I mean, there are all kinds of of economic arguments for why we should continue to reproduce. Like, um, we need people to pay into Social Security going forward. And, I mean, obviously, 
if we want to survive as a species, it would seem to be um, socially, economically, and, you know, medically necessary that we have children. Um, but uh, that has not resulted in there being universal approaches to providing that as healthcare services. It is different. It's quite different in Europe. Most of the um, in vitro fertilization, for instance, treatments are covered. They put a lot of restrictions on on that type of coverage in Europe, which I think is good in some ways. And in the United States, there haven't been restrictions, for instance, on the number of embryos that people would transfer. And, and you know, it has resulted in, in some problems. So there's good and bad. But I, I do think that we're way behind in how we might approach that when we look at our European counterparts. One of the things in Europe, though, while they have some restrictions, I would think that at least those restrictions are somewhat based on medical reasons, not just... Absolutely. Absolutely. Whereas in this country, it seems, oh, we're not going to pay for it, or yes, you can pay for it, and I can do just about anything. And I think there has to be a happy medium. Right. I mean, sadly, I think that there are some, there is that notion in our country that freedom of doing whatever you want is, is the most important thing. We must be free from regulation. And, and, and in medicine, that can be a very dangerous outlook. And so there certainly are people in my, in my field that would have chased had there been lots of regulations imposed. But, you know, again, I think it makes a lot of sense and it would expand options for for women and men who wanted to have children and were having difficulties. So how do you think Medicare for All would help doctors and patients, and especially ones who were interested in getting infertility treatments? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that the, you know, the, the obvious benefits for all people, whether they're, you know, needing to have medical service for whatever type of condition or illness, um, is, is that if you were born into a country where just your very existence um, meant that you had access to health insurance from the day that you were born, would at least put you in the position of having the ability to pay for the services that are needed to keep you as healthy as possible. And uh, to have that continuum start when you're born and continue until you died means that you aren't going to be filling out paperwork to prove that you, you know, don't make enough money to purchase insurance and therefore you qualify for one or another of the uh, public assistance programs. Um, and then, you know, even when you when you come across to your retirement years, and we do have a very wonderful um, traditional Medicare program in this country, it's not perfect and it needs to be improved, but, um, you know, when you reach 65, that coverage is waiting for you. And yet, there are so many hurdles for people to uh, understand how they apply and things that need to be done and decisions that need to be made about 
you know, Medicare Advantage or this or that. And, and all of those problems basically uh, revert back to the fact that we don't have universal continuous care from birth. Um, so, um, I, you know, I think that's the primary way that we would see uh, a better outcome if we had universal care. We, we already talked a little bit about maternal mortality issues and the um, continuum of, of getting health care through all the various stages of life. Um, and, and for women, just because they are the ones that are um, physically capable of, of the birth process, there are some really specific needs that need to be attended to, and those would all be uh, encompassed. And, you know, the, the other, the many economic benefits, you know, one of the things that um, I didn't mention when we talked about what, what people need to know about healthcare in the United States, well, one of the other things people may or may not know about is that um, the majority of bankruptcy filings in this country are, are because of uh, healthcare debt. And so seeing that healthcare bankruptcy go away because medically necessary treatments are going to be covered and you're not going to be in debt for either your healthcare or paying for a very novel drug that's been approved for cancer treatment, but your insurance company decided they're not covering it until you try XYZ first, um, even though your doctor wants you to take this very expensive drug. So all of those ways that um, paying for health care impacts people's economic state, their economic mobility. Um, and, you know, importantly, when you're tied to your employer for your health insurance, often people don't um, seek other jobs um, or think about becoming an entrepreneur because they can't leave their um, guaranteed health insurance. If they are a breadwinner for a family and that's where all the health insurance is coming from, their job, then it stifles that sort of movement and growth for people. So, I, I mean, the, the number of things that would benefit us, the list goes on and on and on. I think you also asked about how how physicians would benefit. And I think we are facing a significant issue of burnout in the healthcare system. And that started before COVID. It's only been made worse by the pandemic. And and I think, you know, something that people may not realize is that on average, doctors spend more of their day uh, doing administrative duties, like making referrals to other specialists for their patients, getting pre-authorizations for their uh, patients to get x-ray or some such thing, um, trying to work through a, a complicated drug coverage system where their patient's been taking one antihypertensive for many years. All of a sudden, it goes off the formulary for that patient's insurance, and then you have to find something else uh, that is affordable for that patient. Um, all those kinds of things take up a tremendous amount of time, not to mention the amount of time physicians spend documenting care and particularly documenting certain aspects of the care that are very important for billing in the electronic health record. And the electronic health record is a wonderful way of keeping track and, and um, sharing information among hospital systems, but it, it's become somewhat onerous because so many of the points that need to be documented really are about making sure the right codes get in. Most physicians are now employed by 
hospital systems or academic medical centers or what have you. And the way that bills are submitted is through documentation in an electronic record. And that is taking up a tremendous amount of time. And there actually have been surveys looking at how that compares in Canada and in Europe. And and we spend an inordinate uh, amount of time um, excess doing that in the United States because of all the requirements that exist when you have multiple insurance payers that are integrating into the system and responsible for paying physicians, hospitals, and medical centers. When you have one payer that pays everything, you've got one system and you've really reduced a lot of that administration. So I think that would would greatly impact physician satisfaction. So, you know, there are lots of other ways that physicians might find themselves in a, in a different place if there was a universal system of uh, single payer. And one of them is physicians might be able to go out uh, and practice on their own without uh, the uh, kind of safety of a large medical center that um, provides all the assistance with this administration. And I think a lot of physicians would be happier if they could practice in the way that they wanted to. And I think it's also fairly clear when you compare uh, physician earnings to Canadians, which would be the closest system um, geographically to us, uh, the the earnings of physicians are are comparable between U.S. physicians and Canadians. The other thing I would say, though, with a single-payer system, one, doctors wouldn't have to fight to get the care that they think is necessary for their patients, and they would have more time to actually deal with medical problems. And as you pointed out, they would spend a lot less time on administrative costs. And I think all those things are contributing to physician burnout. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and you know some of it is i think some of the burnout also generates from the vast corporate structures of uh the places that now employ physicians like academic medical centers or um you know private uh large institutions like a humana or various um large structures like that which really put the physician in in the place of of being a worker in a large system and and not having the independence and the ability to to practice medicine in a way that that they've been trained um but certainly not having to um fight for the benefits that that the insurance company is denying and and many times the reason for denials is is just capricious it's it's because they got a better contract with a different pharmaceutical company and so, therefore, the, the drug that is working the best for your patient that's comparable is made by a different company, and now they, they can't get it paid for. And, and that's just so mind-numbing uh, to do for work. When you're trying to convince someone of an absurd, that, that it's wrong to make this willy-nilly change um, and that it's impacting the patient, you have no leg to stand on. The insurance company really just doesn't care. Because one of the big things I think that has gotten lost in how we how we think about healthcare in the United States is people tend to think to this thought process that insurance companies are somehow 
providing health care, and they're they're not. They're not providing health care at all. They're acting as a middle middleman, and their fundamental mode of operating is, as I said before, you collect the premiums up front, and you seek to make a profit because that's what a publicly traded insurance company is mandated to do. They are beholden to their shareholders, and making a profit means denying care in order to somehow be able to hold on to more of those premiums and not pay out claims. So, you know, thinking in in those ways, it does start to make sense that if you remove that middleman and you actually replace it with a public entity whose focus is not profit, it would make a huge change in how they work. So to give a quick summary, what you're saying is we need to get rid of our deny care system, and the way to do that is with Medicare for all. That's exactly right. So, uh, Judy, before we end, would you have anything that you would like to add? I think one of the things that uh, we're focusing on at PNHP in the coming year um, has to do with the encroaching of private corporate-run healthcare entities into the publicly funded systems of Medicare and Medicaid, actually. And specifically, the one that people would have heard about is Medicare Advantage. Uh, Medicare Advantage is also called Medicare Part C, and it was added to the traditional Medicare system in the 1980s as a way to let private industry provide some of the health insurance to the Medicare population. And fundamentally, I believe this was added because we've had this idea in the United States that the private sector can always do things better than the public sector. But in practice, what's happened is the penetration of Medicare Advantage in the market is pulling people out of fee-for-service Medicare, and that is draining uh, the Medicare trust fund faster than, than you know we would have liked to see and creating a situation that I think, by design, is leading towards the destruction of the public system that is Medicare and replacing it with private insurance. And I think people really need to be aware that Medicare Advantage is not the same as Medicare. And when you do reach that point in time where you're making those choices, you need to be very particular about where you get your information. Each state um, has information available at medicare.gov about how you can sign up. Um, you can also look on the PNHP website and learn some more about Medicare Advantage there. Um, but for those of us that are in that situation, that age range, um, it's very important. Uh, without going into a whole discussion about Medicare Advantage, um, which is another whole hours at least, I just think uh, people need to really become informed about what's happening in that arena. Well, I actually have done a few podcasts on that. and I know. And when talking about Medicare Advantage, I called it Medicare Disadvantage. That's exactly the right name. Judy, thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. Thank you, Joe. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. 
remember to tell your family, friends, and colleagues about this podcast. Information about Medicare for All Explained can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.